This is the Nietzsche Podcast. The Ancient City by Numa Denis Fustel de Collange is a monumental work in classicism and the study of Greek and Roman society. But more than that, it is a window into the mind of the ancient Greek. There's the famous quote from L.P. Hartley, the past is a foreign country. And Coulange accordingly begins his study by enticing us to not think of the Greeks and Romans first and foremost as our ancestors that we inherit our society from. Now we do, of course, and we'll see that there are very interesting ways in which the culture or the religious ideas of the Greeks and Romans, which we certainly no longer hold to today, still influence our minds. But Coulange really wants us to get into the mindset that these are a foreign people to us, and that the way they approach the world is so radically different, so alien from the way that we approach the world. And um, his book demonstrates just that. Now, in the middle of the book, we come upon this passage where Coulange describes the daily life of the ancient Roman uh, during the earliest period of the Roman civilization. And Coulange spends a great deal of time building his case as to how it is that we can hypothesize that the Romans did in fact live in this way and hold to these beliefs as he describes them. And we'll go over the evidence he presents or the case he presents over the course of the episode, but I want to begin with this picture of the daily life of the Roman, because it's so striking. So here is Coulange, the ancient city, third book, chapter 16, and I'm quoting here in an abridged form. Quote, We must inquire what place religion occupied in the life of a Roman. His house was for him what a temple is for us. He finds there his worship and his gods. His fire is a god, the walls, the doors, the threshold are gods. The boundary marks which surrounded his field are also gods. The tomb is an altar, and his ancestors are divine beings. Each one of his daily actions is a rite. His whole day belongs to his religion. Morning and evening he invokes his fire, his penates, his ancestors. In leaving and entering his house, he addresses a prayer to them. Every meal is a religious act, which he shares with the domestic divinities. Birth, initiation, the taking of the toga, marriage, and the anniversaries of all these events are the solemn acts of his worship. He leaves his house and can hardly take a step without meeting some sacred object, either a chapel or a place formerly struck by lightning or a tomb. Sometimes he must step back and pronounce a prayer. Sometimes he must turn his eyes and cover his face to avoid the sight of some ill-boding object. Every day he sacrifices in his house, every month in his curie, several months a year with his gens or tribe. Above all these gods, he must offer worship to those of the city. There are in Rome more gods than citizens. He offers sacrifices to thank the gods. He offers them, and by far the greater number, to appease their wrath. One day he figures in a procession, dancing around to a certain ancient rhythm, to the sound of the sacred flute. Another day he conducts chariots in which lie statues of the divinities. Another time it is a lectisternium. A table is set in a street and loaded with provisions, 
upon beds lie statues of the gods, and every Roman passes bowing with a crown upon his head and a branch of laurel in his hand. He never leaves his house without looking to see if any bird of bad augury appears. There are words which he dares not pronounce for his life. If he experiences some desire, he inscribes his wish upon a tablet which he places at the feet of the statue of a divinity. He steps out of his house always with the right foot first. He has his hair cut only during the full moon. He carries magic amulets upon his person. He covers the walls of his house with magic inscriptions against fire. He does not deliberate in the Senate if the victims have not given favorable signs. He leaves the assembly of the people if he hears the cry of a mouse. He renounces the best laid plans if he perceives a bad presage or if an ill-omened word has struck his ear. He is brave in battle, but on condition that the auspices assure him victory. This Roman whom we present here is not the man of the people, the feeble-minded man whom misery and ignorance have made superstitious. We are speaking of the patrician, the noble, powerful, and rich man. This patrician is by turns warrior, magistrate, consul, farmer, merchant, but everywhere and always he is a priest, and his thoughts are fixed upon the gods. Patriotism, love of glory, and love of gold, whatever power these may have over his soul, the fear of the gods still governs everything. Horace has written the most striking truth concerning the Romans. Diste minorum quad geris imperis. You rule because you bear yourself lower than the gods. End quote. And so if you're used to thinking of the Romans in terms of, you know, gladiatorial arenas and old men debating and togas in the Senate and the military conquests and all that sort of thing, you know, you're thinking probably of the grand style of what is conventionally called Imperial Rome, and is quite a different place from the earliest days of Rome. The beliefs that governed the minds of the Romans in the days when their cities uh, were founded, that's what we're going to look at here. And what we find when we look at every indication of that era, because some of the evidence is indirect, but much of it is very persuasive, that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans were religious in a way that we can't really understand. This concerns both the fervor of their belief, but also the complexity of their polytheism, which was multi-layered and originally based on principles of uniqueness and difference, such that the gods were very many indeed, as this passage I just read suggests. What we today imagine concerning the beliefs and the lives and the political structures of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans is often distorted I mean, it's not uncommon to hear people emphasize that Athens was democratically governed and thus imply it to be a sort of forerunner of our modern systems of government. And of course, the obvious counterpoint to this is that on closer examination, many of the democratic systems of ancient Greece only involved members of an aristocracy. And even though the form was democratic, often the content was theocratic. Decisions were often made based on how favorable the offerings were during the sacrifices, you know, how the entrails looked as they spilled out, for example. A bad omen in a committee might be immediately disbanded, as the quote by Coulange discusses above. In many cases, the scope of what could be decided democratically was limited by religious boundaries, such as candidates approved by priests and by means of auguries. And furthermore, we find Athens to be the most democratic among all the Greek city-states, 
And it's sort of an exceptional example. Um, you know, it's literally the exception. The period of its democratic age also was sort of later in Athenian history. And it was a time of inner dissolution and conflict when democracy reigned. Our engagement with the Greeks, uh, especially when it comes to philosophy, is also overly influenced by the effect of, you know, figures like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And these are all wonderful figures to study, and they're certainly exemplars of a particular kind of ancient Greek living during a particular period. But nevertheless, all these figures hail from that later era that arrives after countless centuries of civilization, which was previously governed in a completely different way, and in a way that's so foreign to our modern conceptions of civic life that it's almost impossible for us to understand, and certainly impossible for the modern person to call just or moral. But in the centuries preceding Socrates, and even before the pre-Socratic philosophers, what we find in the history of Greece and Italy is uh, ample evidence, philological, linguistic, anthropological, echoing down to us from a prehistoric age in which the first cities were founded. Um, and oftentimes what Coulange looks at, uh, as he sort of explains by his method, um, is sort of those echoes. He, 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 we don't find much direct textual evidence actually hailing from the period because very little of it survives. But what we find are beliefs and practices that only make sense within a certain religious framework that didn't exist at the time when they were practiced. And so they sort of indicate that these are very old beliefs and practices and rituals that, um, you know, again, hail from a time when different beliefs obtained in the human mind. And this age, what we find, it believed almost nothing of what we believe today. Um, valued almost nothing in common with what we value today and govern themselves in a way that we might consider to be, by turns, theocratic, authoritarian, draconian, patriarchal, and in many ways downright bizarre. Uh, we're taking this detour from Nietzsche so quickly in the season, um, and it's not even into a source that is an influence on Nietzsche, at least to my knowledge, uh, as Coulange, his book is not found anywhere uh in the library of Nietzsche and at least the 1200 or so books that we know for certain that Nietzsche possessed. So the reason why we're going to Cologne is that we're going to, over the next number of episodes, sort of storm through Nietzsche's ancient Greek influences. Uh, this will include a look at Theogenes of Megara at Plato's Republic, uh, Thucydides. And we're not going to stop at the Greek influences. I want to cover quite a few different uh, political philosophers that influenced Nietzsche's thought this season, more so than the previous two seasons, um, you know, as well as just general, you know, thinkers that would inform one when studying Nietzsche or books or writers, which in my own judgment would be useful for a, the Nietzschean perspective. And this is one of those. But, you know, before we look at a character like Theogenes of Megara and consider this like ancient reactionary poet that Nietzsche held in such high esteem, I think it's wise for us to understand the background, the context, the civilization in which Theogenes lived. And there's no better work to understand that than The Ancient City by Numa Denis Fustel de Collange. In his book, we get a picture of mankind that is emerging from these piecemeal religious beliefs, beliefs that shaped their reality, but was a world of personal, familial, and tribal gods, 
which were specific to a plot of land or to a region, and they steadily amalgamated in order to eventually form the city, which was not simply a collection of houses that unconsciously grew from a town or, you know, from a village into a town into a city, right? But were selected as religious sites. They were chosen and founded in accordance with religious uh, rules. And so religion and state were not even a thing that could be thought separable in those days. Um, you know, when, the, when these first came into the world, religion and state are seen as the same thing in some sense, because the law itself is derived from religion. The word lex in Latin simply means text, and that sense of the law as something written, known publicly by all, and deriving its power from the suffrage of men, uh, the sense of the law was a newer concept in Rome. This is as compared to the older sense of the word law, which is encompassed by their term for tradition and custom, or the word for, it could also be used to denote like common usage. The word is mos. The older laws, the laws of tradition, the mos, reigned before there was any notion of popular suffrage, and they derived purely from the religion. Uh, and it was a religion that existed within a family structure and was bound to that family. This was the earliest foundation upon which all the other layers of these complex societies were built. Now, so at the dawn of Greek and Italian civilization, the family's laws were particular to each. The father was the patriarch of each family, and he had absolute legal authority over the members of his bloodline, up to and including the right to kill or even to sell one's own son. Over time, the families aggregated into extended associations of families known as tribes, and as with the family, the tribe's laws and its gods were particular to the tribe. These laws were, like the laws of one family to another, absolutely secret from all the other tribes. And that's because, as with the law that governed each individual family, the tribe's association was based on a common worship. Rather than joining one family to another's family, which would have been seen as impossible, right? Uh, instead, they form another layer of religious belief, so to speak, on top of the family, which binds each individual family religion to one another. And so all specific sets of laws were kept secret and made fixed and unchangeable by their religious character. They didn't exist for the self-interest of any individual person or even the people in general. But they were conceived of as being handed down from deities only to their worshipers. The concept that we value today, uh, individual liberty or the concept of private property, these were entirely unknown. Other conventions which seem normal to us, such as the idea of leaving a will in which the deceased person divides up their wealth, was an impossible concept for the ancients to grasp. The notions of human rights or equality of mankind would have also been quite impossible for them to grasp. And so at the birth of ancient Greece, um, we find a social arrangement not only so different from our time, but so different from the Athens of Socrates' time, and so alienating to us and to him that we can scarcely even put ourselves into the perspectives of the ancients. And yet, as I mentioned before, something maybe even a little disturbing in De Coulonge for us, and that we can see even the etymological roots of many of our own words 
or the historical roots of our concepts deriving from this pre-modern, pre-individualist, pre-human rights era of our history. That, in fact, we can recognize the humanity in these strange human beings of an earlier time and even recognize some of ourselves in them. Granted, they would look upon us probably with shock and horror, just as we would regard their way of life. But the echoes of how they lived during those long centuries still sit with us today. And just as the Athenians of later eras carried on the beliefs and practices of earlier times without realizing where they came from and without believing in them anymore, we find some of that still reflected in us. And so it's sort of paradoxical, but the Greeks and the Romans, from this perspective, are both entirely alien, and yet there's something disturbingly familiar. And so we'll go to the beginning of the book, where Coulange begins with that sentiment that I made reference to, of the need to abandon our modern ideas about the Greeks entirely. Uh, this is in the introduction. Quote, to understand the truth about the Greeks and the Romans, it is wise to study them without thinking of ourselves, as if they were entirely foreign to us. Thus observed, Greece and Rome appear to us in a character absolutely inimitable. Nothing in modern times resembles them. Nothing in the future can resemble them. We shall attempt to show by what rules these societies re were regulated, and it will be freely admitted that the same rules can never govern humanity again. End quote. This is an important point because de Coulange always treats the Greeks and Romans with a complete detachment. It's a dispassionate approach. He's able to do this because he recognizes the Greeks and Romans are so utterly apart from us in spite of our descendants from them. And so what sets them apart is these very religious beliefs, which resemble nothing of what we have in the modern day. Uh, we don't even see this type of belief preserved today, you know, say in the New Age movement. You know, you might be thinking like, well, I know some people who are polytheistic, but uh, there's really nothing like it, which we'll see as we get in, into um, the text. Um, while de Coulange does not really provide arguments in this point because he's not a philosopher, he nevertheless implicitly invokes the idea throughout the text that belief um, is not achieved by an act of will. It's not a matter of consciously or rationally assenting to a given proposition, right? Which is, I think, the post-Socratic way we tend to think about beliefs. Um, that, in fact, beliefs are things which become fixed in men's minds, which are motivated by strong emotions, by an immediate perception of the world, by experiences. Um, it's not possible, in Kalanja's view, for a modern person to actually imitate the beliefs of the ancients because we don't live in the same world that they do. And we can't force ourselves by an act of will to believe in that world anymore. The world of the ancients was a great mystery. While there are some very old myths which probably hail from like the cradle of Indo-European civilization before the Indians and the Greeks and the Italians split off to migrate their separate ways, you know, such as the myth of the great hunt uh, or a few familiar astral deities, uh, the cosmology of the ancients was very rough, right? It was adumbrated by a few myths and fables, and they didn't have elaborated explicit metaphysics or cosmological schools of thought. They lived in a reality which was strange, and it could be hostile seemingly without reason, and in which extraordinary events occasionally occurred, for which their minds offered no explanation. And after particularly strong emotional experiences, such as 
know, something bad or tragic happening to you, a natural disaster killing your family or your loved ones, the human mind naturally looks for patterns or correspondences as a cause of why such a thing happened. And so in Collange's uh, est estimation, the ancients held up the human will and the human consciousness to be the center of reality or the fundamental thing which they deified in order to understand reality. And what he means by this is that the ancient man, prior to the establishment of these ancient cities, they personified the world around them, seeing the operation of a human-like will and conscious intention behind everything. The core of their worship was around their ancestors, which they believed continued to live on after death. Uh, while many might suggest that such a belief naturally springs from the fear of death, seems to me just as likely that human beings of these eras might not have even been able to conceive of the termination of consciousness, that the idea that the conscious subject ceased to be. Collange records that in the most ancient societies, the soul was said to dwell within the human body, and that the two were not yet separated in the imagination. And there are numerous texts that he quotes to back this up, but um, the ancients often speak of the soul of a dead person still remaining in the body of the deceased. The soul was inhabiting the living body one moment. That same soul must be in there the next moment, even if the body has ceased moving and died. And so the, the most distant beliefs of our ancestral past, common to the Greeks, the Italians, and the Indians, was that the dead went on to live new lives underground. Now, was this like a metaphorical underground or like in another dimension, right? Was the term underground merely a symbol? No, this was a physical space. Was this the vast underground world of Tartarus and the Elysian fields and Hades that was sort of later elaborated by Greek myths? No, even that concept was not yet fully formed. What the ancient men believed was that the dead man, if buried properly in his tomb, or in his ancestral soil, continued to live on in a physical form in the place where he was buried. And he was nourished when his family came to make what were called funereal repasts, where the dead person was offered food and libations. Um, and he notes that one of the things that we still say that f families would wish for their dead ancestors, their dead relatives... Um, is we say rest in peace, and we put that on the headstone where the body is buried, that they are in some sense resting in the earth, the place where they're buried. Now, as with today, no one believes that anymore, right? And yet we still have that convention of saying that. Why? Well, if we go farther and farther back, Collange makes the case, people did actually believe that at a certain point, and that even in later antiquity, when there were elaborated ideas of the underworld or of reincarnation, um, that they still imagined that by providing food and libations, um, basically pouring out wine and you know sacrificing a sheep or goat and giving some of its burned flesh to the dead ancestor, that with these things they could be at peace. They would have a restful and happy afterlife. Um, now, I, I think Collange is correct in that the sum total of these beliefs will never be practiced or held ever again, and that the absolutely physical and literal nature of these assertions is really like nothing we have in modern religiosity. But nevertheless, we might recognize that during the Festival of Hungry Ghosts in China, we have a similar notion. 
the spirits of the dead are actually nourished by offerings left by the family. Um, that it's up to one's own family to take care of the spirits of their ancestors and provide for them through this sort of sacrifice to them. And also the Day of the Dead ceremony in, in Mexico. Um, and it's worth noting that Mexico, China, and uh, you could say the civilizations that sprang from, you know, the Indo-Europeans, um, which are, you know, basically come out of Central Asia where we have like the Fertile Crescent and, um, you know, all the earliest empires. Those are the three places where writing was created and from which basically all subsequent civilizations are descended, right? Um, Colange doesn't talk about China and Mexico, but I just thought it was interesting because it immediately came to my mind when I was reading this, like people still seem to practice that today, right? Um, and so another note in ancient Greece and Rome, just as the belief is still held in China today, if one's ancestors are not taken care of and not fed by the funerary sacrifices for the, you know, carried out by the living family members, which must be reverently observed every year, the dead become restless and angry. And, uh, you know, they become an, an angry ghost that sort of curses the place where they were buried. And the wrath of the malnourished and wandering dead is thought to actually harm the living in the physical world. What we might notice about these beliefs is that by continuing to share meals with the dead, what amounts to, in practical terms, the sacrifice of some portion of one's available food or, or wealth for the sake of those who have passed, and by continuing to pay these respects, one treats one's ancestors as though they're still living and thus ensures that they themselves will go on living after death as well, right? By modeling this reverence for the dead for their own children. And we might imagine that after hundreds or thousands of generations of this primitive belief and, you know, the need to feed and nourish and pay religious respects to one's dead ancestors, one would begin to feel that the immense number of old spirits gathered around the family tomb would greatly outnumber their living family, by orders of magnitude, and that the importance and the responsibility of caring for them would press itself very greatly into the minds of the living. And the farther removed in time from the legendary founder of the family, right, the more mysterious and powerful such an ancestral figure would then appear. And the result is that one's ancestors in India and Greece and Rome became regarded as gods. The terms for these gods are many. They're called Penates, manes, lares, or heroes. The word hero originally derives from a term for an ancestral familial deity. Collange writes in Book 2, Chapter 1, quote, Between the living part and the dead part of the family, there is only this distance of a few steps which separates the house from the tomb. On certain days, which are determined for each one by his domestic religion, the living assemble near their ancestors. They offer them the funeral meal, pour out milk and wine to them, lay out cakes and fruits, or burn the flesh of a victim to them. In exchange for these offerings, they ask protection. They call these ancestors their gods and ask them to render the fields fertile, the house prosperous, and the heart virtuous. End quote. And so the individual human being in this way of belief um, perceives himself as of relatively little importance. It is a profoundly human-centric religion, right? But the individual is the mere custodian of the ancestral lands of his family. And so we see, on the one hand, an absolutely inviolate system 
of private property insofar as every family's property and lands in, for example, ancient Greece, was absolutely their own. And before the foundation of the city-states, there was no higher power uh, over you know, the individual family over their own land or their own family members, their own domain. And why was this? It was because of their religion. The family in the earliest days was a religious construction, um, sort of as we've mentioned. And why was it so? Well, because the family was formed of those who shared in a common worship, right? They're all descended from the same dead ancestors who over time have become gods. And so that sort of binds them together in this duty to take proper care of their dead ancestors, these gods. They demand sacrifices lest they visit their wrath upon the family. The high priest of this family religion was the pater in Latin, or father, who was the absolute ruler of the members of his household. He was the highest judge. And against the father's dictates, there's no one to appeal. This is, in effect, a high priesthood of the eldest born son, always inheriting the totality of the household, all its members, all its lands, property, and slaves. This is called primogeniture. The firstborn son gets all of the property undivided, and his brothers are subordinate to him. It's based on the idea of the male as the generative force in reproduction. The woman was seen simply to carry the child that the male created, and so the family line comes down through the male exclusively. His lands are then marked off by religious boundaries. And while these families lived in proximity to one another, especially once they began to form associations, which in Greece were called fratri or in Rome called curies, each family dared not violate his neighbor's land. Why? Well, because the neighbor's gods would curse a stranger who did so. And if he violated the land of his neighbor, that could be the cause for violence or retribution in order to you know, appease the wrath of their own gods. And in fact, there couldn't even be a shared boundary between familial lands. The outer boundaries, the termini, as they were called in Latin, uh, these could not touch. You know, you can't have a party wall, right? These boundaries are reinforced by religious ceremony, and they're marked, as in all these religious ceremonies, by sacrifices, often the immolation of victims, as we've said, sheep and goats, and the burned flesh would be shared by all those in attendance with some portion always offered to the gods. But this was not, as uh, you may have gathered, a sort of libertarian paradise, in spite of the absolute religious inviolability of private property. And that's because, as we've said, individual liberty and individual property rights are unknown. And in fact, would have posed a threat to the religious piety that kept the family gods nourished and taken care of, and kept their tombs sacred and safe from any defiler. The presence of anyone outside of the cult, which is to say outside of the family, was said to defile the dwelling place of one's gods. And since the father of the household, the patriarch, owned everything and everyone in his respective family, most of the members of the house were, even though there was a distinction between slaves and other members of the family, they were effectively basically his slaves. That includes his younger brothers, his sons, all the women, uh, including his wife, but the patriarch couldn't sell any of his property, his lands. The land was absolutely his, but only as a steward over it. It doesn't really belong to him. It, it belongs to the household gods. To sell one's land would be unthinkable. It's the worst sacrilege. It would effectively unperson you 
to you you'd remove yourself from your own future prospect of a ha- happy immortality um and you would only you know you'd live on as a hungry angry ghost right a distressed entity in the afterlife and so no the household and all the lands couldn't be sold or divided in any way Coulange writes in the chapter The Right of Property in Book 2, and I'm abridging where I see fit, quote, The nations of Greece and Italy from the earliest antiquity always held to the idea of private property. We do not find an age when the soil was common among them, nor do we find anything that resembles the annual allotment of land which was in vogue among the Germans. And here we note a remarkable fact. While the races that do not accord to the individual a property in the soil allow him at least a right to the fruits of his labor, that is to say the harvest, precisely the contrary custom prevailed among the Greeks. In many cities, the citizens were required to store their crops in common, or at least the greater part, and to consume them in common. The individual, therefore, was not the master of the corn that he had gathered, but at the same time, by a singular contradiction, he had absolute property in the soil. To him, the land was more than the harvest. It appears that among the Greeks, the conception of private property was developed exactly contrary to what appears to be the natural order. The idea of private property existed in the religion itself. Every family had its hearth and its ancestors. These gods could be adored only by this family and protected it alone. They were its property. There is no difficulty in understanding that the right of property, having been thus conceived and established, was much more complete and absolute in its effects than it can be in our modern societies where it is founded upon other principles. Property was so inherent in the domestic religion that a family could not renounce one without renouncing the other. The house and the field, so to speak, incorporated in it, and it could neither lose them nor dispose of them. Plato, in his treatise on laws, did not pretend to advance a new idea when he forbade the proprietor to sell the field. He did no more than recall an old law. Everything leads us to believe that in the ancient ages, property was inalienable. Excuse me. It is well known that at Sparta, the citizen was formerly, formally forbidden to sell his lot of land. There was the same interdiction in the lands of Locri and Leucadia. Phaedon of Corinth, a legislator of the 9th century BC, prescribed that the number of families and estates should remain unchangeable. Now, this prescription could only be observed when it was forbidden to sell an estate, or even to divide it. Such laws ought not to surprise us. Found property on the right of labor, and man may dispose of it. Found it on religion, and he can no longer do this. A tie stronger than the will of man binds the land to him. Besides this field, where his tomb is situated, where the divine ancestors lie, where the family is forever to perform its worship, is not simply the property of a man, but of a family. It is not the individual actually living who has established his right over the soil. It is the domestic God. The individual has it in trust only. It belongs to those who are dead and to those who are yet to be born. It is part of the body of the family and cannot be separated from it. To detach one from the other is to alter a worship and to offend a religion. Among the Hindus, property also founded upon religion was also inalienable. End quote. Now, in the center of the household, as Coulange mentions, was itself another object of great worship and reverence, the hearth. The ancestral hearth of the family was kept burning at all times. It was itself a god, 
and had to be kindled of special wood in accordance with the religious ceremony in order to establish the house. At night, it might have been reduced to a few coals covered in ashes, but in the morning it was reverently brought into blazing glory yet again and tended to. All meals were cooked there and shared with the deities of the hearth. The hearth was always in the center of the house in a place that was hidden from any stranger that might enter. This didn't mean that no one who was not from the family might enter the house, although this may have been the case in the very distant ancient times, because after all, the house in this way of belief is a temple to the family gods. But it seems that when families began to cohabit next to one another and associate sort of more broadly, having non-family members to the house became more common. But nevertheless, it's a great sacrilege for your hearth to even be seen by the eyes of someone not in the family, which means it had to be kept in a room hidden from any visitor. I'm going to quote a bit from the chapter entitled The Sacred Fire from Book One. This is uh, in an abridged form. Uh, a couple sections from pages 16 through 18. Quote, It was also a religious precept that this fire must always remain pure, which meant literally that no filthy object could be cast into it, and figuratively that no blameworthy deed ought to be committed in its presence. There was one day in the year, among the Romans it was the first of March, when it was the duty of every family to put out its sacred fire and light another immediately. But to procure this new fire, certain rites had to be scrupulously observed. Especially must they avoid using flint and steel for this purpose. The only process allowed were to concentrate the solar rays into a focus or to rub together rapidly two pieces of wood of a given sort. They saw in the fire a beneficent god who maintained the life of man, a rich god who nourished him with gifts, a powerful god who protected his house and family. In the presence of danger, they sought refuge near this fire. When the palace of Priam is destroyed, Hecuba draws the old man near the hearth. Thy arms cannot protect thee, she says, but this altar will protect us all. See Alcestis, who is about to die, giving her life to save her husband. She approaches the fire and evokes it in these terms. O divinity, mistress of this house, for the last time I fall before thee, and address thee my prayers, for I am going to descend among the dead. Watch over my children, who will have no mother. Give to my boy a tender wife, and to my girl a noble husband. Let them not, like me, die before their time, but let them enjoy a long life in the midst of happiness. The worship of the sacred fire did not belong exclusively to the populations of Greece and Italy. We find it in the East, the laws of Manu, as have come to us, show the religion of Brahma completely established and even verging toward its decline, but they have preserved vestiges and remains of a religion still more ancient, that of the sacred fire, which the worship of Brahma had reduced to a secondary rank but could not destroy. The Brahmin has his fire to keep up night and day. Every morning and every evening he feeds it with wood, but as with the Greeks it must be wood of certain trees." As the Greeks and Italians offer it wine, the Hindu pours it upon it a fermented liquor, which he calls soma. Meals, too, are religious acts, and the rites are scrupulously described in the laws of Manu. They address prayers to the fire, as in Greece, they offer it the first fruits of rice, butter, and honey. We read that the Brahmin should not eat the rice of the new harvest without having offered the first fruits of it to the hearth fire. 
for the sacred fire is greedy of grain, and when it is not honored, it will devour the existence of the negligent Brahmin. End quote. Another interesting thing uh, that Coulange references elsewhere is that, according to Diodorus, the Greeks said that the sacred fire is what taught them to build houses. And so the genesis of the house itself, the domestic religion's temple, was seen to be the fire. When, in later times, younger branches of the families struck out from their homeland to form colonies or found new households, the first thing they thought to do was to construct a new sacred fire. Uh, in the Aeneid, the character Aeneas, the sort of legendary figure, when he's traveling across the sea to um, you know, Italy, uh, he brings with him a sacred flame from the old country that they're going to use to kindle a new sacred fire. Right, And when families began to aggregate into larger groups, into curies and fratries, they did what? That's right, you guessed it, they created a new sacred fire, which was common to all the groups in the fratry, and to which all of them came together on specific days to make their offerings and share a funereal meal with the gods of that new hearth fire. Right? Uh, the fun fact, the Latin word for hearth is focus, and albeit somewhat indirectly, we get the term uh, focus that we use modern day for like putting your attention on something that comes from their term for the hearth. And so far as it is the center of the house, the center of the religion and its worship, um, you know, it really, he actually uses, it's funny. I quoted Collange talking about how they kindled the fire and he says they used a focus. Well, that's like um, using a magnifying glass, you know, to start, you know, you know, how kids use that to be, to start a fire by, reflecting the light in a concentrated point, right? Um, that was, they basically got the term for focusing light in that way from the term for a hearth in the center of the house. So you can see the analogy there. And then that uh, has been developed in our modern term for putting our attention on something, our focus on something. And so the focus, it's the fire burning in the center of the ancestral temple. That's the focus of their spirituality also. It's where the attention goes. The fire, by remaining ever living, right, intergenerationally, comes to signify this continuity of the living members of the family. It's a symbol of the family in aggregate, in one entity, as one unity that continues on, you know, blazing and living and existing and this it's served and supported by the individual living family members, right? So the individual living people are less important, each one of them, than the living hearth fire, as they perceived it, that was in the center of their temple. And that's an actual deity that can reward or punish and which needs to be propitiated. But it, it psychologically, I think, symbolizes the collective sort of family as a coherent power in its continued life. Um, so the gods of early man were specific to their domestic cult. They had secret beliefs, which were entirely insular. The property, the lands of each little family cult were entirely its own and entirely indivisible. And they were intended to be kept by the family forever. So long as the family was able to endure, right? Uh, the gods of this time period, which man worshiped were therefore local. There was no conception of universal deities, there was not even yet the idea of a common deity ruling all of the Greeks or even ruling men of the same city. The first gods were irreducibly tied to one family. 
Kalange writes, quote, Between the gods and the soil, men of the early ages saw a mysterious relation. Let us first take the hearth. This altar is the symbol of a sedentary life. It must be placed upon the ground. Once established, it cannot be moved. The god of the family wishes to have a fixed abode. Materially, it is difficult to transport the stone on which he shines. Religiously, this is more difficult still, and is permitted only to the man when necessity presses him, when an enemy is pursuing him, or when the soil cannot support him. When they establish the hearth, it is with the thought and the hope that it will always remain in the same spot. And the family, which through duty and religion remains grouped around the altar, is as much fixed to the soil as the altar itself. End quote. A final thing about the nature of this ancient family, and to clear up maybe some of the areas you might still be wondering about, um, well, the first thing to look at is marriage, actually. So we may note, first of all, that one couldn't belong to two families at once, just as one cannot even today belong to two religions at once, unless you're the main character in the life of Pi. But uh, maybe in New Age beliefs, too, you could. <laughs> uh, but th this is why these Greeks and Roman and early Indian beliefs are like the inverse of new ageism because they're absolutely private and specific and syncretism wasn't really known yet. It had to be developed. Right. And since each family cult is totally alien to one another, you know, one family with their hearth and their domestic gods and their worship would have a completely different set of rites and hymns and traditions that were observed, right? Because they were developed in secret and separately. And so in the house over on the next plot of land, just a few dozen yards away, you have a completely different religion, right? Now we see, obviously, there are the same themes of the worship of the dead and the sacred fire, which you could say that's like the overarching belief system that unites them all. But, uh, you know, all these gods have an individual character and had different sets of demands, right? And so how does marriage work? Doesn't marriage intermingle the families? Well, originally, no. Marriage was effectively the transition of one a woman would go from one family to another since the male generated the children and the religious belief that what this meant is that the feminine sex had to be moved from one cult to another. Right. And so marriage therefore consisted in these three steps. First, the original family did a sort of ritual to excommunicate the daughter from her religion. She was formally severed from the worship of her old gods and ancestors, which means She's now actually considered a stranger to the to the family of her birth. Her biological father is no longer her actual father in their view. Her old ancestors that she spent her entire life sacrificing to and worshiping, they're not her ancestors anymore. They no longer recognize her in the beliefs of the ancients. The second step then is bridal abduction, which seems to be a very common thing throughout the ancient world and you know, some of these rituals have survived in some places to this day. Another way that we have, you know, there's that funny tradition that we have in America today. Um, even though we preserve none of these beliefs, we have the tradition of the husband carrying the bride over the threshold of their home upon getting married. Um, now, if we look at these rituals that go back to very ancient times, the husband is obliged to pick up and carry the woman uh, she is obliged to resist or to put up a show of resisting, um, regardless of what, whether she wants to resist or not, but she's obliged to. And the husband then carries her into the house, not letting her feet touch the floor or the threshold and brings her before the sacred fire. 
Then the third and final step begins. The woman is inducted into the religion of her husband. He becomes, for all intents and purposes, her father as well as her husband, which is a little disturbing. But his ancestors then literally become her ancestors. They are now her gods, and she, in some mystical sense, now shares in the bloodline that she is just married into. She has to forget all of the prayers and rites she used to practice, and her new husband will now instruct her in how to worship new gods. She now tends the hearth of a completely different religion, and the families remain entirely separate and indivisible in their bloodline then, we might notice, at least in their own conception of what all these things mean. So then you might wonder about multiple branches of the family, um, primogeniture was established as a religious norm for many centuries in which the family was maintained and all the younger siblings sort of remained as part of that same family, but subordinate to the eldest born of each generation, right? Who was then regarded as their father after their natural father passes away. But we might think like, okay, so let's say that, you know, there's a man who has four sons. And so the firstborn son becomes the head of the house, but then he has three brothers and then all of them get married, and then they have kids, right? And so, you know, let's say they all have, we're just using easy numbers for a thought experiment, but let's say they all have four kids, right? So then you have a generation of 16 people, and which only one of those is set to inherit. And then you've got to think like, we've just created three whole branches of ancestry now that are creating people all bound to the same plot of land, which might be very limited in the number of people that it can support. And so over time, the youngest branches did spin off to create their own families. And sometimes they would just create their own new hearth. But the idea of the indivisible family was originally so fixed in their minds that we find in the early Roman history, the idea of the gens. The gens was a sort of extended kin group. And some historians, you know, back in the day, they, they speculated that the gens was simply an association between families, sort of like a fratry or a curie or a tribe in which the constituent families took the same name as a sort of formality. But Coulange staunchly rejects this, and his evidence for this rejection is that sharing the same name, these Roman families would also have gathered together on specific days to a common ancestral tomb or fire in which they would worship together, indicating that although at this already very late date in the lifespan of the type of religion we're kind of describing here, like the familial religions of the ancients, this idea of the indivisible family still lingered and compelled them to acknowledge that even though their bloodlines had become so large that, that it had necessitated branching into multiple households. Nevertheless, they all came from the same parent family, the same ancestral religion, and they were still bound by this religion and its duties to some extent. Now, over time, Collange describes that men began to found cities and further aggregate um, together and religious and social cultural ideas began to develop and we begin to see the abandonment of primogeniture very early um, and we start to see the ability for patriarchs to do things like leave a will in which he sets the inheritance of what each son shall be Coulange points out an unusual quirk for example in the laws of manu in which we see the ancient law and the more recent laws like side by side with one another in the same passage, 
in total contradiction, and yet with no attempt made to reconcile this contradiction, right? So the author of The Laws of Manu tells us by turns that first, the property of a family must remain entirely indivisible and given only to the oldest son, but then that also a just father will allot some property to the younger sons, while giving at least half of it to his oldest, although nothing to the daughters. And then he finally goes on to say further in the text that a kind father will probably leave some property for his daughters too. (laughs) And so each one is incompatible with one another, right? And these types of contradictions, they, it's like religious beliefs emerged in a series of layers on layers on layers on sort of the cultural consciousness of ancient man. And oftentimes harmonizing the contradiction was, it's not only like impossible, it's inconceivable because there's some, it's like, it's the uncompromising demand of a deity, right? If you receive the dictate of a God and then you receive a contradictory dictate from another God, what are you a mortal to do, but to obey and follow both of them, right? You have to follow the commands of the gods. So what these contradictions eventually start to do though, is push ancient man to begin to innovate and modify his beliefs. And this process goes on for a long time in which absolutely private and specific worships of family specific deities are overlaid with the worship of deities that belong to entire fratries or to entire tribes. Coulange explains this process at the beginning of book three, page 94, quote, The domestic religion forbade two families to mingle and unite, but it was possible for several families, without sacrificing anything of their special religions, to join, at least for the celebration of another worship, which might have been common to all of them. And this is what happened. A certain number of families formed a group called in the Greek language a fratria and in the Latin a curia. Did there exist a tie of birth between the families of the same group? This cannot be affirmed. It is clear, however, that this new association was not formed without a certain enlargement of the religious ideas. Even at the moment when they united, these families conceived the idea of a divinity superior to that of the household, one who was common to all, and who watched over the entire group. They raised an altar to him, lighted a sacred fire, and founded a worship. End quote. This was a worship sealed, as we've mentioned, by a common ritual of shared feasting, and a common repast for the gods, an offering they all made in common, right? A sacrifice they're all sharing in common. Further down the page, Coulange writes, quote, These religious repasts of the Curie lasted a long time at Rome. Cicero mentions them, and Ovid describes them. In the time of Augustus, they had still preserved their antique forms. I have seen in those sacred dwellings, says a historian of the epoch, the repast displayed before the god, the tables were of wood, according to ancestral usage, and the dishes were of earthenware. The food was loaves, cakes of fine flour and fruits. I saw the libations poured out. They did not fall from gold or silver cups, but from vessels of clay. And I admired the men of, of our day, excuse me, who remained so faithful to the rites and customs of their fathers. End quote. By the time of Augustus, when this person's writing, there are levels of deity that we might call them that are well superior to the gods of Acuria or Ephratria. You know, there are in Rome gods of the whole city, and during the time of Augustus, there had been a sort of a massive expansion of what it meant for a god to be a god of Rome, right? Because originally the gods of Rome are tied to Roman soil, just like all other gods of this polyistic 
form of religion. Um, but as Coulange discusses later, the Roman deities were eventually worshipped all over the empire, and temples to them were established in places far flung from the city of Rome. And this was not so during the time when the Curies were established, but we see that even during Augustus's time, these local gods of the Curies were still being worshipped. Um, this is not so far from the time when Christianity is founded, by the way, and people are still pouring out libations to gods sort of hailing from this time before recorded history, which only belong to people of certain bloodlines and must be worshipped in the same way they were worshipped long before Rome was founded, with the food and drink and earthenware cups and bowls, because those were the type of wares used to transport the repasts of past ages. Uh, this is something else about this religion before we move on, just to make it very clear that every single religious formulation of a given ritual or a set of syllables one's supposed to utter or the type of material used, right, whatever it is, it had to be maintained exactly as it was. Because again, it's not in your heart what matters or your intentions or like anything like that that we might think of in modern religion. The idea was that this specific set of sounds and syllables is what made the god respond before, right? You know, this we said this right, and then we've had a major military victory. Therefore, the words that we said, and exactly the way we said them, must be what propitiated the gods, right? And so the prayer has to be repeated then with those exact same sounds, even as the language changes. And so what we find is people are repeating hymns and prayers in later eras whose meaning has become entirely unknown to them for which the syllables mean nothing in the language anymore because the language has entirely moved on. Or as this historian records, we're not going to use modern implements or wares. And so oftentimes in all these points, the religion could not be changed, even by the reigning high priest, the father of the religion, on pain of death, because to do so would be to threaten the lives and the continued existence of the family. Or if you're the high priest of a curia, it would threaten all the families under him by making the gods possibly abandon them. So the rituals had to be continued exactly as they were. Kalanj continues in the same chapter, quote, The association naturally continued to increase, and after the same fashion, several fratries or curies joined together and formed a tribe. This new circle also had its religion. In each tribe there was an altar and a protecting deity. The god of the tribe was generally of the same nature as that of the fratry, or that of the family. It was a man deified, a hero. From him the tribe took its name. The Greeks called him the eponymous hero. He had his annual festal day. The principal part of the religious ceremony was a repast of which the entire tribe partook. The tribe, like the fratry, held assemblies and passed decrees to which all the members were obliged to submit. It had a chief, from what remains to us of the tribe, we see that originally it was constituted to be an independent society, and as if there had been no other social power above it. End quote. So what we have here is sort of a, a emerging federated system of absolute dictatorships, structured as theocratic and monarchical and um, dogmatic institutions, right? It's quite, quite literally dogma. The lowest level is the family, the absolute dictator of which is the father, whose power is founded on the basis of his status as high priest and charged with the care of the religion. 
By doing this, the father preserves the immortality and happiness of the family's ancestors, protecting its past and ensuring its future. In matters that concerned just the individual families, the father remained the absolute ruler. But as these groups begin to aggregate, each federated level establishes a new religion on top of it, and this necessitates another absolute power structure, right? Insofar as that's what's demanded by the beliefs of the people living at this time. And so a leading family heads the worship of the Fratri or Curie, and again, we find the same pattern at the next level up, that of the tribe. Again, the Curie is independent from the tribe in one sense, insofar as the head of the Curie and its worship has absolute power of its members when it comes to matters internal to the Curie. But when it comes to governing the entire tribe, the highest level is um, established you know, to be the tribal chief, right? The tribe has its own worship and its chief, which is also you know, the high priest. And so the tribe comes to be the absolute power, but it maintains beneath it all of these absolutely separate religions, the separate religions of the different curies who don't aggregate themselves together, right? They simply federate. And the separate religions of the different families who also don't blend or mix their families. They simply aggregate into curies. They federate into curies. Um, and so they're always joined by a worship common to all, but it doesn't dissolve the indivisible religions which make it up. And so this is the nature of their polytheism. It's it's kind of does polytheism, Roman and Greek polytheism, a great discredit to just say, well, they had more gods than one. It's way more complicated than that. Now, this is the origin of the whole idea of the male landholding patriarch as the citizen, right? Because it's not necessary that each family sends every one of their members to the committees of the curia, or each curia send all of its members to the assembly of the tribe. The father of the household possesses and speaks for all the members of his house, and that means he is responsible for any of the wrongdoings or crimes they commit legally. Uh, it means he owns them and is able to um, you know, take their lives or pass judgment on them. And so only he needs to represent his entire family at the curia. And that bond of religion continues to scale up with each level of the federation, such that when we get the laws of ancient Rome, for example, a man can't be made to testify against a member of his curie. And in fact, his religious duty compels him to speak on behalf of those who share a curie religion with him, right? Even if he personally detests them. And there are examples of this in history where people stand up and testify and say, I hate this guy but he is part of, you know, he's my brother in worship, and so I'm here to speak on his behalf. <laughs> so I think it's helpful to recall here the meaning of the word religion and what's indicated by its sort of etymological parts. Ligio, linking. You know, religion is the force that links or binds people together during this period of human history. And so all of the associations man has are by religion, and yet all the religions are separate and individual. And so in order to join them together, you create sort of like a supra-religion. And new layers of them are continually established. And that means people are linked together and they perceive themselves to sort of serve the same sacred force which protects all of them. They give this of the same, they, you know, they, they all pool together to give their offerings and sacrifice to it. So they make, they share in a common sacrifice 
And since that sacrifice is what propitiates the gods and keeps them from taking their wrath out on the city, they share in a common destiny. And so finally they perceive people within a common religion on these increasing layers as part of the in-group and no longer the stranger. You know, on the level of the family worship and other families' members are still perfect strangers to your own hearth inside your house, right? But when you meet a member of another family but who's from the same tribe out in public, you're not strangers any longer, uh, any longer right, on the tribal level. You all share in the same repast and the same feast day, and you see yourselves as functionally related. You're honoring the same deities, right? So while the many names of the various domestic deities can't be known to us, uh, we know that each family, as well as each curia and each tribe, worshipped, in addition to ancestors, nature deities. Consider, for example, the sun, right? You know, the sun's rays are required to light the sacred fire of the hearth. The sun's one of the most revered phenomena in nature to begin with. You know, it brings light and warmth. And so it's natural the sun would be revered as a deity. It's the thing from which our individual sacred fires descend, so to speak, right? Uh, did man perceive that his family's, you know, sun deity was the same as another family's sun deity? You know, one family establishes a worship to a solar god. Another family just down the road also has a worship of a solar god. But are they actually worshiping the same deity? Or what would they have considered themselves to be worshiping the same deity? According to Collange, uh, no, they didn't. He argues that the perception of great external powers ruling over them as forces of nature didn't at first compel people to the notion of a single deity ruling, right? Um, because we didn't yet, as yet have a concept of the universe or of reality as such, right? We don't even perceive that a singular phenomenon as we experience it might be the representative of a single entity common to others who experience that phenomenon. In other words, my sun god is not necessarily your sun god. Collange writes, quote, On first looking upon the external world, man pictured it to himself as a sort of confused republic where rival forces made war upon each other, end quote. Collange points out that it can be very difficult to trace exactly the developments of religious thought within this particular model of belief because all the beliefs are so specific and secretive. We have there's no you know prophet at the base of these religions, no set of sacred texts. But it was created by each person generation after generation according to their own fashion. Uh, but there were always resemblances between the various private religions which men in time would be bound to notice. And this would be because, as Collange argues, there's a limited number of phenomena which people are sort of want to worship. And, you know, we find a familiar series of deities across most cultures, even those who have, you know, grew up in no contact to one another. And so he lists here, the common objects of worship which we find in nature deities in many religions and how from each one nevertheless a new and private god was created quote the sun which gives fecundity the earth which nourishes the clouds by turns beneficent and destructive such were the different powers of which they could make gods but from each one of these elements Thousands of gods were created because the same physical agent, viewed under different aspects, 
received from men different names. The sun, for example, was called in one place Hercules, the glorious, in another Phoebus, the shining, and still again Apollo, he who drives away night or evil. One called him Hyperion, the elevated being, and another Alexicacos, the beneficent. And in the course of time, groups of men who had given these various names to the brilliant luminary no longer saw that they had the same god. Indeed, each man adored but a small number of divinities, but the gods of one were not those of another. The names, it is true, might resemble each other. Many men might separately have given their god the name of Apollo or of Hercules. These words belonged to the common language and were merely adjectives and designated the divine being by one or another of his most prominent attributes. But under this same name, the different groups of men could not believe that there was but one God. They counted thousands of different Jupiters. They had a multitude of Minervas, Dianas, and Junos, who resembled each other very little. Each of these conceptions was formed by the free operation of each mind, and being in some sort its property, it happened that these gods were for a long time independent of each other, and each one of them had its particular legend and worship. As the first appearance of these beliefs was at a time when men still lived under a family government, these new gods had at first, like the demons, the heroes, and the lares, the character of domestic divinities. End quote. So, again, it's another oversimplified narrative on how, like, polytheistic syncretism worked. You know, that what happened was one tribe had a sun god that he called by a certain name, such as Apollo, and then they meet another tribe that called their sun god Phoebus, and then both tribes said, you have a sun god? Oh, wow, we have a sun god too. Maybe they're the same god, right? That's a narrative I've sort of heard of how the syncretism occurred. Collange is pointing out how if we trace the development of their religious beliefs, it's that's actually not true. It's actually quite the opposite of the truth. It's not as if people recognized a common concept of their respective divinities and decided to aggregate them together out of some rational principle of categorizing them, right? Even though they had named them differently. Rather, they often actually found that the other tribes had the same deities and even called them by the same names. And in fact, one, once historians were able to aggregate all the information of all the different city-states, they found thousands of different Jupiters and Apollos and Poseidons. And they you know, these ancient people didn't think they were all the same because each religion, having grown up in isolation, attributed different characteristics to each of these iterations of reverence for certain natural phenomena. And so they appeased them in different ways, and they did not, therefore, in this period of human history, associate one Apollo to another Apollo. That was that family sun god, and you have your own, and they are different. This becomes more complicated when we then consider the federated nature of this religion, such that you might have at your particular hearth a worship of your own family's Apollo and your own family's Gaia and your family's Jupiter. And then you're part of a fratry in which you worship your fratry set of gods. And maybe you have a fratry version of Artemis and your frat fratry's Juno. But suppose your fratry also has an Apollo and a Jupiter, right? Which means you would make offerings in your home to your domestic Jupiter and Apollo, but on your fratris feast day, you'd make offerings to a completely different Jupiter and Apollo. And the same would be true then at the tribal level, 
such that you might make offerings to a whole new set of tribal gods, including your tribes, you know, Poseidon and Juno and Jupiter and Apollo and Gaia. And yet all of those gods are distinct from the gods of both the other tribes, but also the sub-level <laughs> gods of your family and your fratry and your curie. And so this is what I mean when I say that the polytheism of this era is way more complicated than we're often taught. Uh, and that in later eras, when the gods did eventually become aggregated and composited and sort of combined in the minds of later men, this was, in Coulange's estimation, more from a desire to escape from like the complex, contrived dictates that all these religions had imposed on men's minds and conscience so much, but that those types of religious innovations came much, much later. And if we originally understand these ancient cults in their own terms, all these religions were completely distinct from one another. And what joined them wasn't a natural desire to categorize the gods in the same way. They began to join with things like, you know, the, the material reality of the Roman Empire spreading its gods across distant lands. Uh, it's hard to, like, you have to expand your idea of the god just ruling a certain part of the soil, right? And so then that sort of opens the way to the idea that your Jupiter and Rome might be ruling in, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away or present hundreds or thousands of miles away. And it's it, religious innovations like that, it coupled with the desire to <laughs> escape from, you know, when we look at the, the picture of the, the daily life of the ancient Roman living in this life, having to propitiate all these gods where everything is around him as a god and there's more gods than citizens, we can understand it's like, uh, there was a real pressure to want to simplify that. And so that's a much more plausible case to me as to how later syncretism works. But so now, you know, the book's called The Ancient City, and we finally come to the city. This is pretty much right in the heart of the book, the middle of it, and that's where we'll end for today with a new understanding of what it means to found a city in ancient times. The ancient city is the next step up of federation, from the tribal level to the level of the herbs or civitas to a new municipal level of religion. And since religion was the absolute power over the minds of mankind, this was a new municipal level of law, which would become absolute. The city state, as we call it, was just that the formation of a city indicated also the formation of a state. It was, by its very nature, a religious state. The ancient cities did not simply grow over time from sites where people happened to settle, but in each, in each case, these associations were established by religion once again. Sacred offerings and ceremonies established these associations forever, and they were indivisible forever, just like the family. The city was established as an association of tribes. It was established on a religious site, and no new tribes could be added once these tribes were bonded together with their new sacred fire, and no authority was higher than that of the city. Um, although, you know, each sort of level of religion still maintained its autonomy, as we discussed. And so Collange writes, quote, Thus human society in this race did not enlarge like a circle, which increases on all sides, gaining little by little. They were, on the contrary, small groups which having been long established, were finally joined together in larger ones. We must also remark that when the different groups became thus associated, none of them lost its individuality or its independence, end quote. 
In the chapter entitled The City Forms, Colange tells us of how these city religions were founded, bringing us up to the highest level of federation of peoples known in the ancient world among these pagan polytheists, uh, at least before it begins to break down, right? And uh, it breaks down as slowly and as gradually as it forms, you know, which is over the course of centuries, which is what we're going to talk about next week. But what happens is first, you know, you have the idea of separating public life from religion, then sort of the emergence of Greek philosophy and new ideas about religion and new ideas about what law should govern men, and then Roman syncretism and imperialism, right? All of these begin to dissolve it until it definitively dies with the rise of Christianity. But in the chapter, uh, The City, Coulange gives us some idea of what the formation of the city religion looked like, and he uses uses the example of the uh, founding of Rome. Coulange rejects the idea that the foundation of the city of Rome on a single day and by fiat of one leader was a mere myth. He quotes a plethora of ancient historians who report this fact, and he writes, quote, All these writers have transmitted to us the tradition of the religious ceremony which marked the foundation of Rome, and we are not prepared to reject so great a number of witnesses. End quote. He then goes on to describe the scene, which I will relate in an abridged form. Quote, the first care of a founder was to choose the site for the new city, a weighty question on which they believed the destiny of a people de depended. If Romulus had been a Greek, he would have consulted the oracle at Delphi. If a Samnite, he would have followed the sacred animal, the wolf or the green woodpecker. Being a Latin and neighbor of the Etruscans, initiated into the augurial science, he asks the gods to reveal their will to him by the flight of birds. The gods point out the Palatine. The day for the foundation having arrived, he first offers a sacrifice. His companions are ranged around him. They light a fire of brushwood, and each leaps through the flame. Romulus dug a small trench of a circular form and threw it into a clod of earth which he had brought from the city of Alba. Then each of his companions, approaching by turns, following his example, threw in a little earth which he had brought from the country from which he had come. This rite is remarkable and reveals to us a notion of the ancients to which we must call attention. Before coming to the Palatine, they had lived in Alba or some other neighboring city. There was their sacred fire. There their fathers had lived and been buried. Now their religion forbade them to quit the land where the hearth had been established and where their divine ancestors reposed. It was necessary then, in order to be free from all impiety, that each of these men should employ a fiction, and that he should carry with him, under the symbol of the clod of earth, the sacred soil where his ancestors were buried and to which their manes were attached. These souls, reunited there, required a perpetual worship and kept guard over their descendants. At this same place, Romulus set up an altar and lighted a fire upon it. This was the holy fire of the city. Around this hearth rose the city, as the house rises around the domestic hearth. Romulus traces a furrow which marked the enclosure. Here, too, the smallest details were fixed by the ritual. The founder made use of a copper plowshare. His plow was drawn by a white bull and a white cow. Romulus, with his head veiled and in priestly robes, himself held the handle of the plow and directed it, while chanting prayers. His companions followed him, observing a religious silence. 
As the plow turned up clods of earth, they carefully threw them within the enclosure, that no particle of this sacred earth should be on the side of the stranger. This enclosure, traced by religion, was inviolable. Neither stranger nor citizen had the right to cross over it. But in order that men might enter or leave the city, the furrow was interrupted in certain places. To accomplish this, Romulus raised the plow and carried it over. These intervals were called porte. These were the gates of the city. Such, according to the multitude of ancient witnesses, was the ceremony of the foundation of Rome. If it is asked how this information was preserved down to the writers who have it transmitted to us, the answer is that the ceremony was recalled to the memory of the people every year by an anniversary festival, which they called the birthday of Rome. This festival was celebrated throughout all antiquity, from year to year, and the Roman people still celebrate it today at the same date as formerly, the 21st of April. So faithful are men to old usages through incessant changes. End quote. And so, at the birth of the city, we find a religious ceremony where Romulus is veiled as a priest, binding together several tribes, and um, it's they're bound together by throwing all of their sacred soil into the same into the same uh, clot of earth, right? The same plot of earth. Excuse me. So Romulus is the leader with near absolute power over all the others as their priest of the religion from which all their laws are derived, right? Because you follow the laws of the gods who tell you what to do so that they will protect you and not curse you, right? Uh, but this foundation of the city represents the largest and most powerful association so far um, at, at the level of the federated structure of the polytheistic religion. And uh, this religion, in Rome at least, would go on to begin conquering and dominating all the other groups. Um, the level of the city-state is sort of the level at which organized warfare became very effective and against which a tribe couldn't hope to compete. And so the absolute power of the city-state was driven by external pressures and the need for military organization. All of its dictates went unchallenged since man needed above all the protection and power of their city's gods. In this founding of Rome, what do we have? We have an association of a bunch of people who feel that their religion has sanctified their bloodline. We have a system of rule based on lineage, which can't be challenged for the sake of individual rights. Um, or even, you know, the, the religion can't even be challenged for the most dire expediency. Coulange, uh, for example, he talks about a famous story in which some Athenian admirals managed to win a war at sea. But, uh, you know, during an era where the great generals and, you know, tacticians are educated men who had been taught by philosophers, these sort of new ideas about religion and about metaphysics, which are more abstract and more universal. And so they neglected to collect the bodies of the fallen, which were adrift at sea and committed a great sacrilege. And so in spite of winning and having saved Athens, the city voted and put them to death for basically ensuring the eternal unhappiness of all those souls who would never be returned to their ancestral soil. And so even practical issues couldn't challenge the religious law, even at much later dates when other ideas began to compete. And so what effect would all this have in the course of Roman history? If the city itself is an aristocracy where only the heads of these original families are considered citizens, where only they can own property, and all other men who became disenfranchised or emancipated for whatever reason, um, or don't have a family or don't have lands, 
they don't qualify as citizens. And in fact, they don't even really qualify as people, right? The, the dark side of the famous slogan of Rome, that it stood for the Senate and the people of Rome, Senatus Populus Cae Romanus, that's for that for which the Roman army fights, right? It refers not to the people as we would think of the people today, but rather only to these families, which were bound by the sacred rites. You know, the fathers of the city who founded it and the members of their family. They were legitimate because of their religion, because they had powerful gods on their side, which had allied together, the gods allied together to preserve their city. Everyone else was of no consequence because they're not part of their religion. They're someone to whom the people of Rome have no obligation. And so the public life wasn't conceived of for the benefit of the many or for all men. You couldn't join once the tribes had associated into the city, right? Because at that point, you're a stranger and all of the duties are for the benefits of the gods and ancestors. That's what all the tribes who gathered together to form Rome share in common is the common, you know, sacred earth of their ancestors and the common god of their city's sacred fire. This system of law empowered the few and could not be challenged without great impiety. And so what effect would this have in the long term? Uh, that's what we're going to talk about next week as to how these beliefs fundamental to the creation of the ancient city determined its course and how in the passage of time, it was that great disenfranchised mass, the people without family, uh, or like without a familial religion and ancestral lands, right? Who would attack and eventually break down this old order, which of course they would because this order didn't serve them at all. It was in fact hostile to them in every way. I've barely mentioned Nietzsche's name in this whole episode, but we can see very clearly the rough outline of his genealogy of morality in that picture playing out in a historical manifestation. This nobility, which exists for its own sake and whose religion was individual based on gods and deities who they worship because they gave them power. These people ruled and lorded it over the mass of common men who didn't have these things. And it wasn't out of you know, spite towards them. They didn't from all accounts, even care about these disenfranchised masses at all. The people who lived outside the city gathered around it, as Theogenes says, like wild deer, right? But from being excluded from the rights and privileges and powers of citizenship, those same masses grow increasingly hostile. And this conflict, known in Rome as the conflict of the orders, would over time completely uproot these old religious ideas. And so next week, that's what we're going to discuss, the end. We see the birth, a little bit of the early life of this system, and then next week will be you know, its further development and how it broke down. Above all, what I think is maybe the important thing to meditate on um, as the takeaway from this week is really relates back to the, the quotation, the sentiment that Coulange expresses at the very beginning that this system of life is completely inimitable today because it's based on beliefs that we simply don't hold anymore. But seeing those beliefs, those religious beliefs, as something from which the political order flows forth from, the idea that this uh, you know, religious or mythological basis 
this ritualized existence, this existence um, where people see themselves as this sort of simply a custodian of like this family entity which transcends any one individual. This is what creates a whole social order out of itself, right? It's the belief where it all starts. And um, yeah, all right. I think that's all for this week. So with that, signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.